0: I'd like to uh, repeat a special welcome to our guest. Uh, really blessed to have praise teams, and, and we're, we're focusing on praise teams from the west apparently, um, Charlottesville and, and, and then Japan. I don't think we could go any further west than Japan actually. But uh, um, We're gonna be reading Proverbs 16 verses one through nine, and that's page 539 in, in your pew Bible. And um, our, our focus today is gonna be on planning and so um, I'm curious, are, are you a planner? Do you, do you like to think things through? Do you like to lay out the steps? Do you like to do some contingency planning, uh, advanced scenario planning? Um, spontaneity has a place, clearly. But I am a planner. I like plans. I actually had a plan at one point at Microsoft that was in Microsoft Project, which is a software package, and with a font size of six, it covered four eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper and I had it pinned up on my my uh, corkboard in front of me. So I'm definitely a planner. Uh, I find plans valuable. I, I plan for myself and I plan for my family. Um, I've always had a five-year career plan. Pick any year since I've been in high school and, and I can tell you what my five-year career plan was at that point. So maybe you're a planner like me or maybe you're more spontaneous. Maybe you benefit from the plans others make for you and around you. Maybe you're the victim of the plans of others. (laughs) In any case, the Bible has important things to say about plans, human plans and God's plans. And this week, we're going to look at human plans. Next week, we're going to look at at least part of of God's plan. And so... um, Uh, Let us look at uh, Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 9. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. We ask that you might open our our hearts and our minds, help us to uh, to see your, your power, to see your sovereignty, to see your plan, and to see our place in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, proverbs are very practical, but, but as you can see, we're gonna break a technological barrier here. Um, as you can see, um, uh, sometimes they look like a series of disconnected sayings. Uh, However, Proverbs really are Hebrew poetry, and uh, Hebrew poetry is based on rhyming, but unlike the poetry most of us are familiar with, it's not a rhyming of words, it's a rhyming of ideas. And as we look at the the verses here, we can see, uh, in, in most cases, the first half of the verse is echoed or rhymed in the second half of the verse. But Proverbs 16, at least the first part of it, is actually a special form of Hebrew poetry it is a chiasm, and in a chiasm, the central idea is the central verse, and so if we could get the other look at this, um, we can see that, um, that unlike in English, where often the first idea comes at the beginning or at the end, in a chiasm, the central idea is the most important idea, and... Um, um, now that I've broken the technological barrier, we'll go back to the more traditional way of doing things. If you'll look in, the, um, in your bulletin on page two, we actually have in the sermon notes, uh, we have a, a layout to reflect the, um, the, the way this passage seems to flow, at, at least to me. And so, um, the other barrier I'm gonna break is uh, we're supposed to have a sermon with three points, and, and we're gonna have four, so my apologies. But the good news is three of them actually um, do, do have alliteration. So the four points we're going to look at the four points we're going <laughs> to look at are sinful plans, successful plans, motives, and sovereign plans. And we're going to start in the middle. We're going to start with the central idea, which is the idea of sinful plans. Verse five, dead in the middle of the passage here, says... Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. We're actually disgusting. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. So verse 5 is not only the central idea or the heart of the passage, it's also the heart of our problem with our plans. We we approach plans with with the wrong attitude. We, We come... Uh, selfishly, we come often with with greed or pride or or other things that from the beginning can undermine what we intend to do. Verses 4 and 6 are are parallels, they're echoes, so they're they're sort of one layer out from the central idea, and they continue this theme of sin. Uh, Verse 4 says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. This is the end of sin. Eventually, Sin leads to punishment, and, and sin leads eventually to absolute punishment, unless the good news in verse six is, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And uh, it's, uh, it's very propitious that, uh, that, that I'm doing this, this topic today because uh, Solomon didn't have the full picture when he wrote Proverbs 16 and yet we do have the complete view of Jesus' salvation. We just celebrated Easter, and uh, truly, through his steadfast love and faithfulness, our iniquity is atoned for. The price of our sins have have been fully paid. And on this side of the cross, we know that God changes our heart through the work of Jesus Christ so that we can then demonstrate love and faith. But this is the central idea of the passage. We've got this sin problem and it, 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 it hurts us. It, it distorts our plans and leads to many, many difficulties. And this is where I'd really prefer to share a personal application from someone else. <laughs> but that didn't seem to work real well. So um, in 1999, I was in my ninth year at Ford Motor Company. I was, at least in my opinion, successful at work, things were going well at home, and we were heavily involved in our, in our, in our church. I had a five-year career plan, absolutely, um, which was basically to keep doing what I'd been doing. Uh, I was something of a specialist. I was a senior manager, but I was something of a specialist. There weren't a lot of, of lateral opportunities for me, so basically my only opportunity to do something different was to get promoted, and the problem I had was my boss was young, healthy, and performed well, so, so that path wasn't really open to me either. And to be honest, I was getting a bit bored, and, uh, and was open to listening to other opportunities. Out of the blue one day, um, a, a Microsoft recruiter called, and said, uh, hey, we got this great opportunity. As we talked, the the fit seemed good, the interviews went well, and I was offered a job at Microsoft. From a human point of view, the new position was superior to my job in almost every way. Uh, Bigger job title, more responsibility, more pay. After conversations with Mary, my wife, after consulting with godly counselors, and after much prayer, I accepted the Microsoft job. A happy ending or so you might think. But as Paul Harvey used to say, stay tuned for the rest of the story. Literally, in my first week, Friday of my first week at Microsoft, I'm meeting with some senior people there, and I was made aware of an expectation for my job that I considered seriously unethical. And so I, I actually, in front of the senior team, I, I threatened to quit. i have been there five days. I call Mary when I get back to the office, and she's there. We had a small family at the time. We only had seven kids. Um, And she's there, you know, sitting literally among the boxes, and I say, you know, Mary, I I had to threaten to quit today. (laughs) And she's like, Alan, we just moved our country, our our family across the country. What are you doing? Um, Within six weeks, I was working incredible hours, including 36-hour work days. You come in at 8 in the morning with a clean shirt, about two or three in the, the next morning, you go into the bathroom, wash up, put on your clean shirt and then you work until eight the next evening. And the sad thing was, often when I would go into the bathroom at three in the morning, there'd be someone else in there doing the same thing. Oh, well what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on this, oh yeah. It's just an incredible expectation of, of, uh, of total commitment to work. Within two years of joining Microsoft, I could see my personality changing to be more like Bill Gates and less like Jesus Christ. So how did this happen? In part, I'm convinced the pride of my heart blinded me to the downsides of working at Microsoft. The prestige of the job, the promise of wealth, and the lure of increased influence all appealed to my pride. Verses four and five of Proverbs 16 contain some harsh words that I'd really rather not apply to my decision at Microsoft, but if the shoe fits, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Yet, even in experiencing the day of trouble in verse 4, verse 6 was true in my life. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. We made good friends at Microsoft. We served our church there. I was able to make a positive difference for some of the people I worked with. And I left for better things at Covenant College. Let me be clear, it was God's steadfast love and faithfulness that preserved, protected, and prospered us, not my own worthiness. So was going to Microsoft a mistake? On the one hand, I can see my pride at the heart of the decision. I can see my sin as the problem with that plan. A decision made on pride is, is clearly a mistake. However, God's sovereign plans turned my mistake into good. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay, it's sinful plans, successful plans, motives, then sovereign plans. So we'll, we'll come back to that idea in, in a few minutes. As we uh, go out one more layer from the central idea in verse 5, verses 3 and 7 are about successful plans. What are the things that contribute to our success when we plan? Uh, Verse three is one of my favorite verses in in Proverbs. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. If we start with this committing of, of our work and our life to God, then our plans are much more likely to be sound. They're much more likely to be aligned with God's plans, his sovereign plans. Um, verse seven really deals with the uh, outcome of godly successful planning. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I mean, can you imagine in the midst of battle, um, uh, you're pleasing God so much that your enemies just, just turn to peace? In, in business, can you imagine um, uh, Walmart saying to Target, hey, great, you know, can we help you in any way? You know, but actually turning your enemies in, into your, your, your allies, making them at, at peace with you is the ultimate outcome of, of godly plans. I'd like to look at the example of Solomon, who is the author of this passage, as, as best we can tell. Um, and Solomon had both successful plans, following verses 3 and 7, and sinful plans. King David, Solomon's father, um, gives him this charge in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. David speaking, and you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever." And David is speaking prophetically here, both about successful plans and about, about sinful plans. And um, Solomon clearly started well. His plans as a new king were, were based on godly desires. Um, as we look at 2 um, Chronicles uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 10 through 12, when, when Solomon, at the beginning of his reign, is, is actually visited by God miraculously. Uh, Solomon makes this request, and listen carefully to God's reply as well. So uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 1, starting in verse 10. Solomon says, Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours? Which is so great. God answered Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who, ha- who hate you, and have not even asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I've made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you and none after you, shall have the like so Solomon very in a very godly fashion asks for the right thing he asks for wisdom and God blesses him with that and Solomon's plans especially early in his reign uh, tended to be uh, quite successful Um, he, um, he committed his plans to the Lord and he succeeded he built the temple that his father David was not able to build He had the greatest political and military success of any king of Israel. He had wealth beyond imagination. Elsewhere in the Bible we read that he had tribute of 25 tons of gold a year. Um, At $1,600 an ounce, that's $1.2 billion in gold a year. At that time in Israel, silver was so common, it was considered worthless you know can you imagine you're say oh we're going to have people over no no don't get out the silver plates get out the gold plates you know don't, don't use the trash stuff um, that's how rich the kingdom of israel was at at that time but unfortunately solomon ended poorly his plans late in life were overwhelmed by his own sin in 1 kings 11 we hear the extent of his sin, and we hear God's judgment on, on, on his sin. And so 1 Kings 11, um, starting with verse 1, uh, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Despite the Lord's command, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Verse 3 we read, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Verse four, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not truly whole to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Verse, verses five through seven, we get a list of the gods that he started following. Verse eight, And he did this for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, you've not kept my covenant and my statues that I commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. So Solomon's, like I said before, the author of Proverbs 16, And he stands convicted by his own words. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who's arrogant, by the end of his life, Solomon was quite arrogant. Everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Solomon's sin caused the kingdom to be divided after his death with the worship of foreign gods rampant throughout Israel. Eventually, the people of God were conquered by foreign kings and exiled from the very land God had promised them. Yet the promise of verse 6 also held in Solomon's life. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. The people eventually returned to the land. Eventually, Israel was reestablished, and even more importantly, Jesus was Solomon's descendant. Truly, by Jesus' steadfast love and faithfulness, Solomon's iniquity, my iniquity, your iniquity, was atoned for. So we see the same pattern here. I hate to draw a parallel between me and Solomon, but we see the same pattern. A human mistake, a pattern based on sinful desire rather than godly righteousness, is turned to a godly purpose. Looking back at Proverbs 16, let's go out one more layer, okay? So we've looked at the heart of sin. We've looked at um, successful plans. Uh, Let's look at motives now. Um, uh, Verses 2 and 8 address this issue of motives. Verse 2 says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Verse 8 says, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. So, um, uh, these show motives here. Verse 8 basically says that a good motive uh, with limited earthly success is far superior to a bad motive with much gain or great revenues. Um, Verse 2 says we can fool ourselves about our motives, but God is not fooled so one of the things that we wanna do as we engage in making a major decision, creating a major plan, is to attempt to avoid being fooled about our motives. A couple of things that uh, I believe uh, we ought to do before we we choose a a path, before we uh, select a branch in the road, and part of that's examining our motives carefully. If your way seems innocent to you, good, but verse two warns us here, you know, we, we, we don't always have the insight we need, so uh, first of all, obviously check your own motives, but then get a second opinion, and a third opinion, and a fourth opinion, okay? For second opinion, I would say let's, let's use the scriptures. This is useful for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that we can be equipped for every good work, okay? For third opinion, we need to go directly to our God in prayer. We need to, to lay our heart open to Him. We need to lay our plans open to Him. And prayer is not simply going to the vending machine, coins in hand, to get what we want out of it. No, prayer is us interacting with our loving Father and allowing Him to reshape our plans, not merely to confirm our desires because our desires can be wrongheaded, but allowing Him to reshape our desires and our plans. For the fourth opinion, I would recommend seeking out godly, godly counselors. Um, go to other people and say, this is what I'm thinking, and, and even more importantly, this is why. Here are my motives here, and allow them to test your motives. Allow them to say, so, so you know, what's really going on here, Alan? What, what, what are you really thinking? You know, what's the good that would come out of this? What are the potential problems? And so even after we, we test our motives ourselves, we, we, we examine the scriptures, we, we go to the Lord in prayer, and we, we, we go to godly counselors, we cannot assume arrogantly that we know God's will, finally, totally, and unequivocally. Okay? We still need some humility here. James, I think, does a great job of laying out the... Uh, the problem with arrogance and planning. So James 4, verses 13 through 16, he says, "'Come now, you who say, "'Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town "'and spend a year there and try to make a profit. "'Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. "'What is your life? "'For you are a mist that appears for a little time "'and then vanishes. "'Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. One of the things I I love about Charlottesville is it's right there in the mountains, and, and often when the weather's right, you get that mist on the mountains. But when the sun comes up over the ridge, the mist is gone. It's burned away, just like that. James is saying that's how we ought to view our lives. In the eternal perspective of God's plan for creation, we're like that mist. We're here briefly, and then we're gone. And if we come into our plans with that attitude, it shouldn't lead to pessimism. Oh, no, anything I do doesn't matter. It actually ought to lead to confidence. Because we can say in God's grand plan, if it's his will, I will live and do this or that. So we start with that broad base of confidence, that rock of God's sovereign plan for our lives. And we do it in a, in a humble, almost ironic way. If the Lord wills, I'll live and do this or that. And if we do that, I'm convinced that that sets us up for success in our plans because our motives are first of all to serve God, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever and then maybe we'll go to the city and buy and sell and make a profit or we'll change jobs or we'll we'll, pursue a certain educational path. But it starts with that broad base of it's God's will that's ultimately important in my plans. Okay, so sinful plans, successful plans, motives. We're gonna complete the idea by looking at sovereign plans. We're going to start it this week and we're going to pick it up again next week. But verses 1 and 9 furthest out from the central idea here talk about human plans and God's sovereignty. Both of them say that even the connection between our brain and our body is under God's sovereign control. Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man but the answer to the tongue is from the Lord. As a, as a, a person with some training in psychology, I would, I would not say the heart is where my plans lie, I would say it's, it's, it's the brain, specifically the front of the brain. If you think about the, the link between our brain and our tongue, it's actually pretty short, it's just a couple inches, okay? So that, that little neural pathway from, from the front of my brain to my tongue is under God's sovereign control. I can think a thought But the words themselves cannot come out until God allows it to. The plans of the heart belong to man. but The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 9, you know, parallel image here. The heart of man plans his way. Once again, I would say the head. But the heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. So I can't even move to the side of the podium here without God establishing my steps. And once again, this shouldn't lead to pessimism, this shouldn't lead to disengagement any more than James is saying, don't plan, doesn't mean, doesn't mean anything. No, James is saying, yeah, absolutely plan, but plan knowing God's sovereignty, God's will is the foundation on which you build your plans. And so verses 1 and 9 in many ways ought to give us confidence that that God will not allow us to mess things up so badly that he cannot turn it to his good. What we say, what we do, are under his sovereignty. So Proverbs 16 shows both wisdom and folly, both godly plans and sinful plans. Yet we can plan with confidence because we can live with confidence knowing that God is always protecting us. And so I want to end looking at uh, Romans 8, and verses 31 and 32 first. So given, given what I've said about sinful plans, sin being the heart of our problem with our plans, the Apostle Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up first all, how will he not also With him, graciously give us all things. Skipping to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Planning success depends on our heart, depends on our heart attitude toward God. We have to deal with our heart of sin to get our plans right with God. If we don't get our heart right, our our plans truly are primed for failure. Yet even with our imperfect heart, our Father loves us. He loves you. And he has a wonderful plan for your life. God's plan for us, his calling for us, cannot be thwarted by anything or anyone not even ourselves. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray.